0: Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. The Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith is the highest um, magisterial organ after the Pope himself, well, and after an ecumenical council, of course. Um uh it has authority only if the Pope, you might say, ratifies what they what they uh promulgate. But they have a little think tank and they tend to kind of kick into the you know the 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 curve balls they send to the think tank and they the think tank sort of thinks them over. Hence think tank. <laughs> um, and um some interesting documents come out of that. Um and uh, one was uh, done on the diaconate. And there is a section or a chapter of that on the question of female diaconate. And it goes through the historical data for this. And uh, it points out the historical data is, is quite uneven. There's much more evidence. though still very limited in the um, Greek church and less in the Latin church. So, meaning there, the church which is influenced by the Greek language compared to the one influenced by the Latin language, um, or actually, I shouldn't even say Greek. I would, say, I should say, more the Eastern church, because probably the the the, the kind of go, one of the go-to texts of interest is uh, a Syrian text um, called the Apostolic Constitutions, and I put in a little quote from the Apostolic Constitutions there. Um, which is um, the third from the bottom quote? Yeah, and and that that's uh, one level is quite striking. If I read that, it says eternal. Th- this is this is yeah. I just let me just read it. Eternal God, Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, Creator of man and woman, who filled Miriam, Deborah, Anne, uh, Hulda, with your spirit, who did not deem it unworthy for your Son, the only begotten, to be born of a woman who in the tent of witness and in the temple did institute women as guardians of this your sacred doors look now upon your servant before you this is a kind of a rite of initiation it seems proposed for the diaconate grant her the holy spirit and purify her of all defilement of flesh and spirit so that she may acquit herself worthily of the office which has been entrusted to her for your glory and for the praise of your Christ, through whom be glory and adoration to you in the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. And this seems to be a rite, including the position of hands uh, for the institution of a female deacon. Now, uh, we also have a um, uh, just above that uh, a canon from the Council of Chalcedon, obviously in a, one of the very early councils, fifth um, century council, and that seems to in imply that there was something like a female deacon or uh, the the word deacon was applied to women because it says a woman shall not receive the laying on of hands as a deaconess until 40 years of age and then only after searching examination and if after she has had hands laid on her and has continued for a time to minister she she shall despise the grace of God and give herself in marriage she shall be anathemized and the man united to her. So it seems to preclude marriage as well, uh, according to what's implied by the Council of Chalcedon canon there. In the Western Church, there's no mention, it seems, of a deacon being applied to a woman for the first 500 years, and then it's very, very uh, patchy. Sometimes the word deacon seems to be applied to a nun, and sometimes the word deacon seems to be applied to the wife of a man who is a deacon. Okay, the conclusion, at least the conclusion of the ITC was this, that um, there was the name deacon applied to women in the early church. It was very uneven. It died out fairly early on. And the speculation is this, that it died out because the function which it took in the church waned. And that function seems to be particularly... Assisting the priest in full immersion baptism of female adults. Yeah? And uh, this is implied by the quote I put, second to the bottom quote, this guy, Epiphanius of Salamis. He says, There's certainly in the church the order of deaconess, but this does not exist to exercise the function of a priest, nor are they to have any undertakings committed to them. But, for the decency of feminine sex at the time of baptism, so uh, the speculation is that perhaps, as adult baptism became less common, then the need for having a woman to to uh, assist the priest for the sake of modesty in full immersion baptisms also died out with it yeah so I mean, it's partly speculative, but some texts like this kind of point us in that direction. What is important is that the ITC come to this conclusion, that the way that Deacon was applied to females was never equivalent to the way it was applied to males. So though the word, same word might be used, perhaps with a feminine um, change to it, um, it didn't mean precisely the same thing. Uh, One thing is there's no evidence that they ever served at the altar or that they fulfilled a liturgical function. Whereas those two things seem to be dominant in how male deacons operated in the early church. So again, we have to slightly get away from this idea of the deacon being something who kind of does just purely administrative things. Um, There's lots of texts in the early church where priests and male deacons are Uh, squabbling over who does different liturgical functions. And lots of statements reminding the deacon that he is not a priest. Uh, But this indicates that the male deacon was fundamentally operating in a liturgical situation and therefore was likely to tread on the toes of the priest. But that doesn't seem to be the case in regards to the female deaconate. So maybe that would be the main conclusion of that document. The the term is definitely used, and we definitely have something called female deaconesses. Uneven seems to have faded away, but it doesn't seem to be true that it was equivalent to whatever the male deacon was doing. So conclusion would be, it seems to me, my first question was, do we have any compelling evidence in favor of it? I would have to say, no, we do not have any compelling evidence in favor of it. Okay, my second question was, do we have any compelling evidence against it? Okay, and this requires me uh, doing two things. First of all, we have to discuss whether the diaconate is a sacrament, and then we have to discuss whether there is a unity to the sacrament, such that if somebody is precluded from one grade of the sacrament of holy orders, they are precluded from all grades of the sacrament of holy orders. Okay, do you understand my mode of operation there? Yeah, so I'm after this question. Do I have compelling evidence against it? I've got to say first, do we include the diaconate in the sacrament of holy orders? That's the question. second question is, is it the case that there's a certain unity to the sacrament such that if a person was excluded from one grade, they would necessarily be excluded from the other grade? Okay, so the first question is, is the diaconate... A sacrament. Now, that might seem a strange question, but um, it's actually it was for. uh, Seems to me that theological tradition is not is not in unanimity on that. There's quite a lot of texts from you know well-respected theologians through the history of the church who didn't consider the diaconate a sacrament. The majority did but it wasn't unanimous. But actually, we shouldn't be surprised at that because uh, there was a very strong um, theological tradition that the episcopacy was not part of the Sacrament of Holy Orders. St. Thomas didn't think it was part of the Sacrament of Holy Orders. Uh, the reason being is, in the episcopacy, uh, it wasn't clear, at least to St. Thomas, that it added any sacramental power. It added jurisdiction, which the priests didn't have. But that is power over the mystical body, not power over... Sorry, that's power over the... Um, yeah, mystical body, not power over the Eucharistic body. And it seems that actually uh, this is only finally decided by the Church of the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council um, didn't really... Well, uh, it's commonly understood, didn't make dogmatic statements, but it probably did make one on the episcopacy where it finally determined that the episcopacy was a separate and new grade of the sacrament of holy orders, because it conferred upon the man the ability, the power to make another man a priest. Because, okay, but this is important because it indicates this. Uh, One of the elements you've got to have in place to show that you've got a sacrament is that it's giving power not just giving permission, not just giving authority, but really giving spiritual power. And because of certain yeah, certain things, uh, some theologians didn't think that the episcopacy gave any spiritual, new spiritual power to a priest. It only gave him jurisdiction to rule a certain segment of the church. Uh, now... It seems that we'd have to argue, no, it does give a new spiritual power because it enables a man to make another man a priest, which we might think is not present in the priesthood itself. A priest cannot ordain another man a priest, but the bishop can ordain another man a priest. However, we do have tricky situations that there was permission given by several Holy Fathers in the Middle Ages for priests to ordain priests, so it's not absolutely certain that priests cannot ordain priests. Uh, but that's another question. Tricky one. Yeah? Uh, so if you were a theologian and thought, no, actually a priest can ordain a priest, it's just that they don't have that power normally operative, just as a priest cannot normally confirm, but in certain situations can have the power to confirm actualized, then you would then argue that the bishop doesn't receive any new spiritual power when he's made bishop. He only receives jurisdictional jurisdictional power. Yeah? You with me? Okay. So, because of this, some people are saying, well, what is the spiritual power that the deacon receives when he is ordained? Perhaps he's only receiving administrative power. And they would say, but that's not enough to constitute it a sacrament. So he becomes somebody who has permission to do something in the church which other people don't have, but he doesn't actually have new powers to do things he couldn't do before. He just would have done them before outside of the permission of the church. But clearly a priest receives a new power, not just permission, He's got power to consecrate bread and make it the body of Christ. This isn't permission. This is power. And therefore, this is the reason why, there's a, why it was not uni- unanimously accepted that the deacon was part of the sacrament of holy orders. And uh, what I would have to say is this. I don't think it's ever been dogmatically defined to such a degree that somebody couldn't mount a plausible argument against it. What we see in Lumen Gentium, Second Vatican Council, what we see in the canon law is an implicit acceptance that it is part of, no, so I, I have to correct myself there. What we see in the canon law is that it's stated to be one of the greats of holy orders. And you can see that if you uh, read 1008 at the top of the page. So the canon law accepts it clearly to be one of the grades of holy orders. The question would be, to what degree is the canon law infallible? Uh, I would argue that canon law is infallible if it touches on something which has clear doctrinal implications but that position itself could be debated. But that would be my position. It's getting complex, understand that, yeah? But I'm trying to amount the evidence. So, the canon law says, diaconate is definitely part of the holy orders, but somebody might say, but is canon law infallible? There's certain other things which are protected by infallibility, clearly. Is canon law? Canon law can clearly change. It changes here and changes there. I would argue, however, if canon law touches on a doctrinal issue, then canon law is protected by infallibility. If canon law does not touch on a doctrinal issue, it's not protected by infallibility. At least not doctrinal infallibility. Canon law accepts it. Lumen gentium implies it. Trent doesn't answer the question. So... Lumen Gentium implies it, but by, because it says things like the deacon is strengthened by sacramental grace. Now, the original draft set called the diaconate sacramental ordination, but it was changed to a much sort of more nuanced is strengthened by sacramental grace. And the doctrinal commission for that document said the reason they made the change was because they didn't want those who opposed, the position of the diaconate as sacramental, part of, of the grade of holy orders, to feel condemned by the statement. Yeah? So, whew, how do we interpret that? <laughs> yeah? Um, so, I suppose I would conclude something like this. Um, it's a solid position to hold that the diaconate is truly defined as a grade of holy orders, but it would be really nice to get a more clear doctrinal statement from the Church on it to be certain. Yeah? Hence, were the Church to reform that position, I don't think it's going to. Uh, for me, it wouldn't cause us crisis that, you know, it's defined it here and now it's changed it. Yeah. But it seems a strong position without utter certainty to it, in my opinion. Okay. So that was all about whether the diaconate is really part of the Sacrament of Holy Orders. Let's assume it is, for the sake of argument, yeah? Okay, now we have the question about the unity of the Sacrament, because it comes like this. Well, somebody could argue, okay, it's part of the Sacrament of Holy Orders, but perhaps it's possible to, as it were, for a woman to receive One element of holy orders, but not the other elements of holy orders. So we still have a question before us, even if we're going to take the diaconate as definitely part of holy orders. Yeah? How do we go here? Well, at first we have to make an admission. It is true that there is a distinction between the diaconate and the priesthood on the one side, priesthood and episcopacy on the other side. The priesthood. The person who's a priest and the person who's a bishop clearly act in persona Christi in a unique way which is not true of the deacon they act in persona Christi to such a degree that they are able to confect the Eucharist and absolve from sin and we also have to admit that the theological argument which the church has given in recent years at least in, in the papal magisterium of John Paul II um, to support the reservation of the priesthood to men alone is this idea that they act in persona Christi, the bridegroom. The clearest statements of that are in Pastores d'Abo Vobis, his Apostolic Exhortation on the Priesthood. Actually, in in Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, which is the very short letter where he made it clear that the Church could not ordain women, he doesn't give any theological argument to it. He just says, given what Christ has done, the church has no power to do this. He doesn't try, it's a short letter to just make a statement. He's not going to build into a uh, uh, theological argument. The theological arguments come in other documents, yeah? But his approach was definitely this kind of spousal element that the priest acts in the person of Christ, the bridegroom. Now, if the deacon does not act in the person of Christ, the bridegroom, at least one reason against... Women deacons is not present. Yeah. Uh, however, there is still also theological work on people who, who will argue no, it's still the case that the deacon acts in the person of Christ in some manner. Yeah? So that's a whole sort of area of the of where people are trying to theologians are trying to work on it. Yeah? Um, however, when the document from the ITC was issued, Uh, most of the interest in the press was on that single chapter on the female diaconate. And so it was necessary for the ITC ultimately to make uh, a further statement of clarification on that. And the clarification was short and brief, but it made this single point. It said, the main issue against female diaconate is the unity of the sacrament of holy orders. So it clearly up, uh, it clearly was coming from the point of view that diaconate is part of the sacrament of holy orders, and there is a certain unity. Now to understand this, we have to understand the relationship of deacon to priest to bishop in terms of being what you might call parts of one sacrament. The only an analogy in the sacramental order we have is the, that of marriage. Marriage as a sacrament is constituted in consent, but it is perfected in consummation. All the other sacraments are kind of binary in the sense of they just happen or they don't happen. There's not sort of grades of perfection in them. Uh, But even the marriage thing there is, is a little bit weaker. But there is a certain sense there that you are actually married. You have a sacramental marriage if you're both baptized by consent, but it's not made completely indissoluble into a consummation. It can still be dissolved by petrine privilege. That indicates that the consummation, the act of consummation, brings about some new perfection of the sacrament. In Holy Orders we have a similar reality. We have different grades of perfection. Now, Therefore we should understand it in this way. Um, I wish I had a little diagram here, I can't, so I'm going to uh, have to appeal to your visual faculties, your inner visual faculties here. It might be possible to think of the three grades as like sort of um, three, um, think of a circle, and then you divide it into three parts, yeah? And you get diaconate, you've got a third of the perfection, and you get the priesthood, you've now got two-thirds of the perfection, and you become a bishop, you've got the whole perfection, Yeah? as if they're parts like that. That doesn't seem to be right. It seems better to think of them as concentric circles, with the deacon in the middle, then the priest, then the bishop. Yeah, Because when you become a deacon, you share something of the power of the bishop. And when you become a priest, you have all the power of the deacon and share more in the power of the bishop. Yeah? If that's true, and it is true, because you can be ordained per saltum, you can skip grades. You shouldn't, according to Canon Law, but it has happened in the church. Ambrose, I believe. Yeah? Um, If you can jump, you can jump because when you get the higher one, you get everything which is in the lower one. Now, if that's also true, it gives the sense that the concentric circles is a better model, yeah? Okay, what would that mean? It means this. Here's the punchline. If you are a deacon, you already, in some degree, have the episcopacy in this very limited manner. And therefore, if you can't be ordained a bishop, there's no way you can be ordained a deacon. Because to be ordained a deacon is to have part of the episcopacy. Yeah, I think that's really what's, uh, not to think that one through, but that's really what the ITC is, is on about. Okay, let me finish up. Final point. Okay, what's my conclusion? There's no compelling evidence for it. There is strong evidence against it, but I admit it hangs on certain things which could be disputed, like whether the diaconate is really part of holy orders. Yeah? Maybe there's possible to mount an argument against the un- unity of the sacraments. So I'm not arguing that these things are so certain that I wouldn't uh, get into dialogue with somebody who had a contrary position. But I think the position I'm putting forward is a very strong position. I think perhaps we will only, um, it, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a, have a magisterial statement on it think it would be useful to have a magisterial statement on it, but perhaps it's not the time and there needs to be a bit more, more reflection on these matters. Finally, in regards to cardinals, uh, cardinals are a, women cannot become cardinals according to canon law as it stands, uh, nor can a layperson. However, the cardinal is of ecclesial institution, clearly it's not of divine institution. And therefore, I think there is no essential reason that I can see that can st- would stop a lay person being a cardinal. We do have situations of lay cardinals, which I cannot find out from my historian friends, the answer to this question. They've definitely had minor orders. Did they have major orders? If they required to have the diaconate or not is not clear to me in history. Yeah, But anyway, it seems to me because the cardinal does not exercise legislative and judging authority in the church, or at least doesn't have to, I don't see a reason why a layperson theoretically couldn't become a cardinal. I'm not arguing for the prudence of that. I'm just arguing from what I see... Um, as, as the principles. And it doesn't even seem to me that electing a pope is the exercise of legislative power or judicial power in any way in the church. So I can't see anything opposed to that fundamentally. But I hold that lightly, ready to be corrected at any moment. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.